Will we see you at CBP Connects presented by Arrive POS in St. Louis, Missouri, June 20th to 22nd, 2022? While we strive for a day when our in-person workshops will be 100% free, we are extremely proud to offer one of the industry's most affordable events. Join us for three days of networking and education, 10 interactive workshops, three nightly receptions with drinks on CBP, and one not to miss opportunity for you to build relationships with your fellow craft beer professionals. Only $149. Huge thanks to Arrive POS, River Drive Cooperage, Strike Visuals, and White Labs for believing in CBP. See you there and learn more at cbpconnects.com. Cheers. Hey everyone, I hope you've enjoyed our 2022 Spring Virtual Conference, our fifth one of these. I greatly appreciate all of you. Big thanks to Arrive POS, River Drive Cooperage, and White Labs for helping keep CBP 100% free and accessible to all of us. The idea for this session came about several weeks ago when we saw quite a bit of job postings in our community. The challenge of job postings being posted in Crappy Professionals is that they not only can serve as simply employment opportunities, but also conversation pieces. And that's the beautiful part. They transform the dialogue on how our industry can be better, and we can't have enough of these conversations. I'm not here to help you tell you what's right or wrong. I'm here to tell you we can do better. And by always striving to be better people and by treating our team with greater respect through creating safer workplaces, through listening, we can approach conversations on what is fair compensation. Now, let's meet our panelists. Maxim, you are to the right of me and you have the honor of going first. Thanks for being here. Thanks for uh, having us on. My name is Maxim Baru. I'm with the Industrial Works of the World, which is an international union based in Chicago. Well, thanks again. Stephanie, good to see you. Hi, I'm Stephanie Vavanese. Um, I'm a recruiter. I've started, have been working in it for the last four years. So hopefully I can add some, some insights here. I'm excited for your perspective. John, great to see you. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Andrew, for having me and for setting up this, I think, really important panel. Uh, my name is John Hyman. I am uh, an employment lawyer and beer lawyer with the law firm Wickens Herzer Panza in Avon, Ohio, which is um, a suburb of uh, Cleveland up here on Lake Erie. Uh, and you can find us at OhioBeerLawyers.com. I've represented craft breweries um, uh, for years, uh, advising them on their Someone's got some friendly dogs chatting. Right advising, <laughs> advising them on their, on their labor and employment issues. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here, John. And Jake, this is the first time you and I have actually spoke. I have listened to your podcast, so I kind of felt like I knew what it was like to interact with you, but I'm glad to interact yeah. on Facebook. Yeah, that's what's great about a podcast, I guess. Yeah. My name is Jake Keys. Um, I'm a proud member of the Iowa tribe of Oklahoma. We're a small tribe here, uh, by, here in a town called Perkins, Oklahoma. Um, I own Skydance Brewing Company. We're Oklahoma's Native American craft brewery, uh, the first native-owned brewery in Oklahoma City. We opened uh, 2018 at the end of the year, um, working out of a, a co-op brewery. And uh, six months ago, we opened our own location in downtown Oklahoma City. So I'm ready to have this cool conversation. <laughs> it's going to be a good one. Before we dive too deep into it, Maxim, you and I chatted earlier today and we kind of connected over our travels to Iceland. If you could be anywhere in the world right now, and obviously we're stuck in front of a screen as we have been so much the past few years, where would you be if you could just pop somewhere else? Oh my gosh, I think maybe Tokyo. Uh, I really miss uh, colleagues of mine. I also had a really terrific opportunity uh, to work with a small union in Japan called Tozen, which primarily unionizes immigrant workers um, and a lot of people actually from the United States. And it was um, really inspiring to see uh, workers from the United States uh, fighting good fight um, in Japan and, and, and having their attitudes towards unions changed when they themselves are immigrant workers in, an, in another place where they feel um, sort of culturally disoriented and out of place. And um, I really miss all those folks. I haven't seen them in a long time. I, I bet that was a fascinating experience. Definitely. Now, the three of you who haven't spoken yet, are you just happy to be in front of your screens hanging out with me right now? <laughs> I just came back from spring break. So I was down in, I was down in South Florida for a few days with my family. So uh, now it's, as I look out my window, kind of gray, gloomy Cleveland's April weather. So I'm, I'm missing the, you can tell by my glowing tan, but I miss the, I miss the sun a little bit. So, awesome, Stephanie. How about you? Where would you choose to be right now if you could be anywhere? Uh, Croatia. You know mm. why? 
supposed to be beautiful. Like it's my next, it's my to do. It's on the checklist. Next one up. So my wife and I, we actually honeymooned in Italy and Croatia. And I'm not going to do it on camera, but I've got a tattoo based off that trip. And it was an amazing time just driving in the Croatian countryside. And we're driving and we look to the right off a of seaside, you know, view. And we're like, is that a castle? Is yeah. that a castle? And so we kept driving. We had the opportunity to explore an abandoned castle. So you got to go to Croatia. It's on the to-do list. And sailing over there is supposed to be exceptional. So I've heard. Yeah. Yeah, you got to go. Jake, how about you? Where would you be? I'm normally a Montana guy, so I like to be in the outdoors. <laughs> but uh, if it was if it was anywhere, probably on some river in Patagonia, fly fishing or something. Mm. So I can appreciate Montana. We also did that trip, and it's amazing mm. in that way. Yep. Now let's get into the real conversation. We can talk about travel later. That'll be a follow-up session. But Target is raising its minimum wage to as much as $24 an hour, depending on the local market. And they are currently starting at $15 an hour in all markets. I've seen job postings right here in CPP offering less than that for jobs with more responsibilities and more grueling labor. Why should someone consider working in the craft beer industry? I think because they love beer. I mean, it, it's, it's a difficult time for employers everywhere as wages have risen to combat the great resignation, the great reshuffling, whatever you want to call it. And employers have felt the crunch of making recruiting and hiring and retaining quality employees that much more difficult, um, which is why you see Target starting at 15 to $24 an hour. You see um, the McDonald's down the street is advertising, you know, $19 an hour plus full benefits plus paid time off to, um, you know, to, to sling Big Macs on a, on a griddle at a McDonald's. Um, nobody's doing that. Nobody's doing that because they have a passion for making Big Macs or dropping fries in a in a in a fryer. Um, I think what makes our industry unique, I think, is the passion that people feel for it, which is why people get into it in the first place. And Jake, how about you? Oh, go ahead. Go for it, Jake. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm in a similar boat as John on that. I guess like. I came from running my tribe's casinos for almost a decade, making way more money than I make now. Uh, I don't really ever hardly get a paycheck, actually, as the owner of the brewery, but uh, I do it for the passion and the, and the love of it. And I think a lot of people do things that they love knowing they, they may make a little bit less or sometimes it's to get to the next step or do something something different. But obviously, as owners of businesses, we can't use that as an excuse to not take care of our employees and to make sure people are happy. So for me, there's always that, that balance there. And like I said, I rarely get a paycheck. So I, as the leader, I eat last and that's my theory. So. And Jake, you know, as an owner, you, you chose to make those choices in your life, but for those who work for you, love obviously can't pay the bills. You know, how do you encourage people to want to work in your tapper or your, your production side of things? Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, I think like we have, we just have constant conversations, you know, like I, I, I've always believed the key to success is winning relationships. And so making sure that we have great relationships with everybody that, uh, that is a part of our team. Um, so we're always, that means we're always communicating, uh, when it comes to like the taproom staff, we literally had a meeting and asked them, uh, how they like to get paid, whether it's tip share or different, you know, in the taproom, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, I have one person that brews beer with me. It's just me and him. And I've never seen somebody work so hard in my life. <laughs> and like we we just have regular conversations and, and make sure that he's happy and that we're taking care of him. And there's there's what I'm what I can afford to pay. But and then sometimes I even feel like, man, I wish I, I really wish I could pay him more and still be in business and stay alive. We're, we're six months old, so we're still trying to get to a certain point. But um, so we do other things, you know, whether when we can afford an, a, bon a bonus or, you know, um, you know, obviously there's perks to working in a brewery. Um, so it's, again, communication and having a good relationship with them so that you know uh, where they're at and, and everybody and they know where we're at as well. I think what uh, John and Jake are brought up is uh, spot on. Um, it's a really important question to ask. I think the people do it for the love of it enormously. Um, we're seeing, you know, from our uh, connections with workers in the industry, people making between 46, 55K in the brewing side, packaging, like 14 to 16 bucks an hour. 
And what we're seeing when we compare that to people's bills um, is that it's not affordable for them to, to pay rent or barely affordable in a lot of locations. And um, unfortunately, it's because of that, it's likely also to suffer similar fates to other passion industries. You know, I'm thinking about education, healthcare, um, including journalism, right? People often get into it really passionately. They work a few years, apprent like apprenticing, learning the skills. Um, then they like do some really muckracking journalism for a few years, earning not a lot. And then, you know, they want to have a family. They want to have a sustainable life. Maybe they'll go to, you know, maybe they'll switch over to uh, public relations or something like that. And we'll lose, you know, an important pillar of our society as, you know, if journalism is, is damaged as an as a important pillar of democracy. Likewise, um, you know, if people are leaving the sector because it's not sustainable uh, financially, that's also, you know, going to damage the industry. Um, I think that the communication element that that Jake brought up is enormously important. One of the interesting things I saw recently was a December um, national survey from the Public Relations Review Journal, um, which surveyed both managers and non-managers across the United States about listening. How do people feel about listening and communication? And what they found with super majorities is that both managers and non-managers agreed that complainers were not listened to, that people feel they cannot talk to those sort of up the food chain because of fear of reprisal or fear of, you know, being disfavored in one way or another. So I think uh, that communication that Jake is talking about is, is so critical, but um, the step that I think a lot of, you know, corners are missing is sort of institutionalizing that listening, Institu creating a, a sense of protection and insulation for people to be able to have that two directional conversation to reverse those trends that we're seeing nationally across the United States. No, absolutely. That, that's great feedback right there. Stephanie, how about you? You help people find jobs in the craft beer space. How do you encourage them that this is a good idea? Well, I think, you know, there's, there's a couple things that come to mind. You, the question was, why should they? And I think, you know, as brewer owners, people think that this is a really sexy industry and people want to work there. You need people who also don't want to necessarily work there, but they want a job. So I think that's something we should be thinking about as you're interviewing. Yes, if people are really passionate about an industry, um, they might be willing to take less. But, um, you know, that's not always going to be the case. Some people want a job and, you know, why they should work there versus the reality is, like Maxim was saying, people need a paycheck. And at $47,000 a year, if that's what you're getting paid, or 55, and increases our 8% inflation and gas, like, it's not always going to be sustainable. So as cool as the environment might be, hopefully it's flexible. I mean, the selling points are you often have a flexible environment. It's pretty cool. It's a fun environment. It's hip. You have a lot of different personalities. Everyone's pretty much welcome. It's a very welcoming, I think, a place. There is a lot of passion in it. It's fun. It's hip. You know, um, you get to drink beers throughout the day. Like, not everywhere, but, you know, that's a theme. So that's exciting. And if that's your lifestyle, that's great. But I'm seeing the flip side is, like, people, all because they want to work there, they can't afford to work there. So that living wage is really huge right now. And I think people assume because they're passionate about it, like people want to work in this industry and therefore they're going to take less. But the reality is this great re recession and reshuffling, I'm seeing more people leaving the industry and even taking on a different career because it's paying more. So, you know, people are demanding if they want to change jobs, they're all still asking for more money because they really need it. And I, you know, it's, are you pushing people out? Depends. Like Jake, you said, you're not taking a paycheck and it's your first six months. But for some of those employees, those managers and owners who are taking a deep paycheck, you know, keep that in mind. I think there's a difference. And I was happy to hear Jake say that he pays himself last. That's what any small business owner should really should do and take care of their people first because the people is what runs the business. That's the most important asset you have. Um, I think there's a difference between the startup the startup brewery like Jake is running and the large legacy 
brewery that's established and has years of profits to fall back on. I think there's a huge difference between understanding that Jake probably has a, a set of resources that he can afford to pay people without, and he's not even he's not even taking a paycheck. Um, as the cost for materials rise, the cost for transportation, you know, distribution rises, all that's rising. You're either gonna raise the price of your product and maybe price yourself out of the market, or you're going to, uh, or you got to cut costs somewhere. So I think there's, I think there's a difference between the uh, you know, Jake's, you know, Jake's startup brewery and what the list of the top, 50, you know, the top fifty independent breweries in the country just came out yesterday. I think and to, you know, pick any off of that list. I think there's a huge difference in terms of what those two very different, I think, segments of the industry can afford to pay their people. Maxim, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's definitely true that there are different dynamics for the big players and the small players. Uh, we, there is also a cascading effect where the big players may use trade associations to uh, limit or shape the way that beer is distributed or produced depending on different states. And that can have like a cascading effect on smaller producers, smaller distributors that effectively you know, sets the industry in a certain regressive direction. I'm, I'm sure that happens as well. Uh, nevertheless, what we've seen even among small employers is that, and it's nothing really personal, just the incentives, the way some of those incentives go in the same way that, um, you know, some, somebody can be renting an apartment their whole life. And finally, when they buy, buy a condo, um, the incentive, and they want to rent it out, the incentives put them in a position where they want to sort of do the least repairs and they want to get the most money that they can from renting the condo that they've spent their whole life saving up to buy. Um, and they may be very passionate about the fact they finally bought a condo. The incentives just push you in a certain direction. And our union um, tackles a lot of small employers that um, sometimes are not as given attention by other labor unions. And that's one of the patterns that we see when we get to a point where we are prepared to make compensation demands um, is that there's there is often um, room room to negotiate there. But um, the other really important key for employers that um, are really up against a wall financially about what they can do, which I think is actually a far smaller minority than is generally thought, um, we see from many, many workers in the brewing industry that they're actually above compensation. People's concerns are often health and safety. People are working with chemicals that can be dangerous. People are working with machines that can be dangerous if mishandled. Um, people are also facing psychological harassment and connection with, you know, uh, uh, unequal tra uh, treatment. People uh, from different backgrounds, uh, unequal treatment with respect to women, um, and those are many workers just consider that part and parcel of health and safety on the job, even above compensation. So when we're also thinking about um, how to make the industry sustainable and how to make it attractive for people, how do, how do we make it so it's an industry where when you look around the shop floor, people who are working there are older as well, that it's not just young people, there's not just enormous um, uh, rate of turnover. Uh, there's more than just compensation in that package of what needs to be, what could be done. There's absolutely a ton of factors that go into that. We're going to dive into that in just a couple questions down the road. But I wanted to go back to the compensation portion and communication. I think all of you have mentioned communication at some point. Now, Craft Beer Professionals, we've recently partnered with Craft Beer Advisory Services on the first industry-wide employee satisfaction study. And we're excited to soon share these results as an industry-level report on these trends. But from the early results, the study shows that 37% of those who responded believe their compensation is below fair pay. That's 37% of those who responded believe their compensation is below fair pay. How should brewery owners and management be asking their employees what they want and how they believe they should be fairly compensated, what that package looks like? How do we initiate these conversations? I mean, from my perspective, if you know you are paying them below, I wouldn't, you know, I'd address that, letting them know you realize that, but this is what you're offering. So don't pretend like you don't know. If you know, I think transparency is really key here when you're talking about compensation. The more transparent you can be, 
the more honest and genuine the conversation is. You know, I think people will listen more and respect you more and be more understanding. And then they will also be more honest. Okay, if I can't do this, I think a big thing is, you know, we're paying less, but hey, if we can hit these marks, then we as a team get a bonus. So you want to get buy-in as a company. So if you can't pay it, I think it's fair to address it and that's going to be respected, but figure out a solution as we're talking about. The other thing is maybe it's a flexible schedule. Maybe someone's paying a lot for childcare. Do they really need to be there at those hours? Or um, it's healthcare. You know, maybe is there a different plan? Can we get creative? Or you don't have a 401k. You know, maybe can you as a company, and I've done this with my my employees because I don't have a 401k. I said start a, a Roth, you know, 401k, and I'll contribute what I would have contributed. So it's less overhead costs, and I pay them a percentage that I would hope to see. So is that something they approached you about or you approached them about? Or how did I you know that. what they were Because I felt like it should be offered, right? And I felt like, and if I want to be competitive and I'm seeing what everyone else is doing, I know why people are leaving, right? So sweeten the pot before they ask it for it to be sweetened. I'd be curious to know why the employees feel they're unfairly compensated. So what is what is their definition of fair compensation? Is it, I know what, brewery X down the street is paying their employees and you're paying 20% below and we are of a similar size and we do a similar, you know, and we're similarly busy and we have similar output. And so I think I'm unfairly compensated that way. Or is it, I feel I'm unfairly compensated because my rent is X, my car is Y, my cell phone bill is Z, my, uh, my groceries are, you know, Delta and I just can't make ends meet. And it's, and I think there's two different two different calculus or two different conversations to have depending on whether it's whether fairness is defined by I can't make ends meet in this industry or can't make ends meet working for you versus uh, I know I'm being paid less for comparable work. And I think the second is a much easier conversation to have uh, with an employee than the, I think it's, it's an easier conversation for a company to have with an employee over the second than the first. If the employee comes to you and says, I, I know that I, I'm being, I'm not being compensated what I'm worth because I know what I'm worth is based on what, you know, X, Y, Z or every other brewery in town is paying people for the same, for the same exact work. I think John, uh, is right. And I would just add to the two, uh, like ver variations of those perceptions to others, one being people's perception of sort of gaps in wages in a particular brewery. So for example, people might notice that men and women are being paid differently. People might notice that somebody who's working a different shift, different time of day, being paid differently, performing the same labor. People notice that brewers are being paid one sort of normal rate, another, and then people doing packaging are doing another rate um, and noticing the way that those different jobs are uh, paid differently according to what some people might see as like a more arbitrary distinction in the value of those two different jobs. So that's sort of like, I think another uh, is that's more, you know, going into conversation around uh, wage, transparent wage scales and hiring practices. Um, and the other one that I would add to what John said is around spending patterns by the employer. So one of the things that our members, you know, I'll also see it in many industries is that an employer will say, I don't have money to pay you more right now. Like I, you know, I'm you know, stuck. And then they will go and they will buy a fancy piece of machinery. They will go and they will, or, you know, or, or, or a new Tesla or a new Tesla, a bingo or a new Tesla, or they will, you know, uh, buy a new staircase from some fancy company in Sweden or something like that. That's like, you know, sometimes the workers go really far and beyond and they say, okay, what do you want? You want this new piece of machinery? Let me, let us research for you. Okay. Where can we source this thing? And the employer goes and buys a more expensive version of it without any transparency or explanation. So it's also about the spending patterns that they see where they say, okay, this employer is spending, buying some nice stuff, has a nice life. Here I am uh, working very hard. And, um, you know, there seems to be an unfairness there. So those are two other elements I would add to what John said. Which I will add is the, I mean, that's the owner's prerogative. It's his or her business and how they want to spend their money. But it is definitely a perception problem. If you're telling your employees you can't afford to pay them more and then you drive up in your fancy new car or make this expensive capital investment that the employees might not perceive as 
necessary necessary for the business or not as necessary as putting a few more dollars in their pocket every every paycheck yeah that's not going to do miracles with employee morale for sure mm -mm. but jake you know you run a young brewery right now how are you having these conversations with your team about their expectations what they would like to have as part of their compensation package yeah, I mean, it goes back to what I just what I said at the beginning, you know, I mean, we we make sure that we have uh, a lot of team meetings. Um, it's a lot easier for me too. I have less employees than a lot of a lot of the bigger breweries. Right. So I get to have a little bit more of that one on one face to face time with people. Um, I work every day in the brewery on packaging. So when it comes to the production side, um, I'm there with them all the time, you know, so I'll, and, and I sense when some, if somebody's unhappy or not, you know, and I'm all, that's always on my mind all the time, because again, I'm at the stage right now, I can't afford to lose somebody like that. That For me right now, it'd be devastating, you know? So that's always something I'm thinking about all the time when it comes to the taproom staff. Again, we we're meeting monthly. We, we do monthly um, like incentives and, and contests and stuff. And we allow them to have say of what that might be. Um, it, you know, we, we point out, we, I open up books, Sometimes I don't go maybe all in depth in the in, in to the bank account and stuff, but we we look at financials with the taproom staff. We show here's here's what we sold this month and here's what we did in packaging wise, and they that lets them feel a little bit of ownership, like they're part of the game, but they also get to see where I'm coming from, right? So it's like, hey, we had to cut back some hours in December and January, and me and my wife we we worked some ta uh, taproom shifts to kind of save on payroll a little bit. But we, as we did it, we were showing them, here's what we were doing. Here's where taproom sales were down for those two months. And then when things went back up, we, we gave them all the hours they could use, you know? And so it's just, again, it always comes down to that communication. And uh, we, we try our best to look at it like a family. We're all, we're all a family. And when, when, if everybody feels that way, it's a lot easier to have that communication. But um, sometimes my wife's a little bit better about picking up on the signals that maybe somebody's unhappy or whatever. But look, it's been six months. And when you first start a brewery, it can get really busy really quick and put a lot of stress on a lot of employees. And we've been extremely lucky to not be losing people. And so somewhere in there, we're doing something right. And hopefully, um, hopefully we're seeing it and sensing it when something's wrong. But I agree with Maxim. I think some sort of processes, and this will maybe evolve as we as we grow. Some sort of processes to make sure you're really getting input from them, and they they feel comfortable saying the things that they want to say. Somewhere I know with my position, people may not want to say certain things in front of me, and so. Um, that's something I'd be interested as we grow to try to figure out ways to implement that kind of stuff. And Jake, what's something you've learned from your employees so far? Oh man. Um, I don't ever underestimate, uh, a 21 year old <laughs> anymore. Who's who the first time to serve alcohol was in our, in our brewery and for her age, like all the preconceived thoughts I had of, of younger people that age and how hard they might might not be willing to work. She's completely um, blown me away with, with her, you know, how hard she works and shows up early and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, that, and then I think like hearing them talk to us about how they want to do the tip pool, that kind of stuff. Like I didn't think they'd want to do it that way. I'm, I'm, I came up from waiting tables and bartending in the old days and I wanted my tip money to be mine. <laughs> and um, they wanted it this way because some people work the opening shift when it's slow. We open at 11 o'clock. We're the first brewery in town open and then we're the last one closed. And so they want to make sure that, hey, I opened up. I did all the cleaning and the mopping. And then I left about the time it was getting busy, but I'm going to get my share of those tips. So hearing them say that, um, really opened up my eyes a lot. So your employees made the decision to start tip pooling. Well, I, I would say in the very beginning, um, you know, we, it was a scramble to get open at the last minute. We got our license to serve alcohol like the day before we opened. And so, um, we, we did that to begin with. And then when we had our first of that next, uh, four weeks later, we had our monthly meeting with everybody. We literally, we just asked them, Hey, how do you guys want this to be? We did this on a whim because it was the easiest way we knew how to do it with the POS system that we use and all that stuff. And so um, they all to a T were ecstatic about that that's how they want it done. And so we've always stuck to it. And we, I'd say every other meeting, we ask them again, 
you know, is this still working out? Do you guys like it this way? We can change it however you want. Does anybody have ideas? We're always asking for ideas all the time. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I think that's, hopefully they're telling me the truth and they really like it. And um, it seems to be working out good for everybody. On one hand, there's compensation. And on the other hand, there's happiness. But compensation doesn't necessarily equate to happiness. For all of you, I'd love to hear the other factors that influence an employee's happiness. You know, I know, Maxim, earlier you talked about health and safety issues. You know, what are the other things we should be considering that come together for a bigger picture of providing that ultimate employee experience that we all really should be striving for? I think that um, maybe to get the ball rolling, in addition to uh, health and safety, which is definitely people's top um, top priority when they come to the union, uh, is something that I think we're all familiar with and we all know in our in our guts, which is wanting to have a reasonable amount of control over when you do your work, how you do your work, and to what ends your work is put. To have a sense of like meaningful seat at the table, um, as we we started off by saying, people love this industry. Um, more often than not, people want to see the industry succeed. They want to see people enjoy the products. Um, and often they actually see efficiencies or competitiveness or agility or improvements in the process um, or machinery or what have you that uh, could be made and are not being made as a consequence of some one arbitrary reason or another or not being listened to. Um, and they would like a seat at the table in order so that more brains and more diverse brains uh, can collectively make better decisions that ultimately benefit themselves and as, as well as the industry. So uh, I think a sense of meaningful control of the working lives really isn't that what we all want at the core of it. Um, Has that changed more through the pandemic, do you believe? Pardon? Has that changed more through the pandemic? People appreciate little things like having more control over their life, that work-life balance. I think that one is, has stayed steady. I don't, I don't, I haven't seen a, a big change um, in that one. I think at the end of the day, I think if you kind of put all the ideas that we've talked about into the blender, I think what comes out is employees want to feel respected and appreciated. Um, they want to feel that they're, uh, you know, compensated fairly for, you know, for a hard day's work. They want to know that they, you know, they have a seat at the table, that their ideas are respected and listened to. They might not, might all, might not always be adopted, but at least they're being um, listened to and taken seriously. That um, they're going to, you know, we all go to work with 10 fingers or most of us do anyway. And we want to leave with the same 10 fingers we came to work with, um, you know, that we're given a safe place to work. I think it comes down to respect and appreciation. And I think if employers keep that as the kind of guidepost for how they make all their decisions. Um, it may make me obsolete and I might not be an employment lawyer anymore because companies might not need my services. So it kind of goes against my own self-interest. Um, but I think at the end of the day, that's what, um, that's what solves a lot of problems in the workplace. Now let's talk a little bit about wage. You know, if this conversation got started and why we made it into a panel is someone would post a job, say, in Montana for $35,000 a year for a brewer. And the person in California and LA sees it and like, oh my gosh, how can you live on that salary? So, you know, how should brewery owners look at how to craft the right wage for each position? Is there a formula and what factors should they be considering when determining how to properly compensate their team? Yeah, I feel, I feel like for us, you know, in Oklahoma, we're similar to that Montana situation and i think when we did a lot of research online and tried to find you know examples of breweries and, and talking to uh, maybe accounting firms and accountants and stuff there doesn't seem to be a lot of representation for uh businesses in areas like where, where we're at where you know rent's a lot cheaper than it is some in some of these other states groceries are a lot cheaper than it is in some of these states and um so for us like we, it was hard to find that, but as brewery owners, we all know other brewery owners in the area. We, that's just part of the brewing industry. We all have a good relationship and we share ideas and we communicate with each other. So literally for us, it was talking to all of our friends who own breweries, kind of getting a feel for where everybody was at on, uh, whether it's the 
hourly pay for taproom staff, for brewing staff, that kind of stuff. And making sure for me, it was making sure we were on the upper end or above that. And so that was kind of really how we went and then throwing it together in our financials, make sure that works and we think it will work. And so that's kind of, that was really our method for it. I'm, I'm curious, Stephanie, when you're working with your clients, um, helping them recruit for positions, are you helping them also benchmark what the, what the right pay level or pay ranges are for a particular position? And how are you going about doing that? That's a great question, John. So I do that. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, whenever I'm sending a candidate over, I typically will have an idea of what they're currently making and then what they're targeting. And then I'll also know what the brewery is paying. Um, so I, I do provide guidance as much as I can. But I think one of the things when I'm talking to breweries, like even in Syracuse where I am, and they tell me what they're paying, kind of going back to the previous conversation a little bit, like, is an employee feeling valued? Like, why are they feeling this? When you talk about Target paying 15 to $20 without having any skills, that's what you're also up against. So I'm worried about the group think a little bit that you have going on, Jake, with all due respect. But if you're talking to other brewery owners, you're kind of going off of each other, right? And no one really knows. But someone can walk away and walk into Target and get other very good benefits and do that for 20 bucks an hour. And on quality of life might grow up. Like, yes, they love it and they're passionate about it. But if it's a lot of years a year to pay to bills, let's just do that, right? So the other thing I talk about when I'm doing this is, well, how many years of experience do they need? Like, what's the skill set? Like, there's a value to skills. So have you, all because people are paying $20 an hour, and yes, you might be doing that at 25, I think you guys are going to feel the pain when people leave when they can easily get a job that's cheaper. So, um, you know, the things I was also thinking about to kind of bring this together is what else is, you know, the fair pay? Like, are you providing training? Like, that doesn't necessarily have a monetary value on it, but it has a value to it. So if you can provide training and people feel they're building their skills, which you couldn't get at Target per se, you're specializing. And then down the road, you know, you have a career path. Like that's what people also want to see. So, you know, I have the conversations. It's not just the money, but don't assume because your neighbor's paying that much that people want that because I'm recruiting and trying to find brewers who are working in these little these neighborhood areas and they are leaving because it's the pay. But if everyone's paying the same amount, well, then you have the same situation. It's, it's going to be like an exodus, which is my concern, especially as things go up. I think there's also like zooming out of individual, like sort of personality differences between um, different owners, like talking a little bit about sort of the system of incentives that's in place and I think that when we look at that, it, it really invites us to ask, how can workers be part of that discussion? How do we ask this question of workers? How can you set and be in the leadership of the discussion around compensation in this industry that you want to see grow and survive and advance? So when we look at, for example, despite the fact that, you know, Huffington Post did an investigation looking at the, what goes into like the cost of a six pack. And out of that six pack, labor is 1%. Despite, so looking at that, uh, distribution, retail margins, packaging, they take up the majority of the product. Even loss on product is higher than the labor costs that go into a six pack of beer. Um, but despite all of that, there is something that incentivizes many owners out of all of those different expenses to turn the screws on that 1% that is their labor expense, which is that um, the cost of machinery, the cost of the chemicals, the cost of other input products is set by sort of other industries and other employers who are organized into trade associations and themselves set, you know, are, are uh, aggressively organized to set prices and, and they, they might be perceived as inflexible, whereas uh, their employees who are not organized as they are in trade associations of one sort or another, um, they, you know, can be negotiated with in small groups or individuals, and you could continue to like continuing to suppress wages, continuing um, uh, sort of like to, to depress wages, and that's like this reality is something that was recognized in the United States 
in the early 20th century, the founding act of US labor law talks about this inequality of power between employers and workers as having one of the consequence as leading to suppression of wages and, and compensation and, and that leading to exasperating business problems um, and the need to create that legal framework in order to balance out these tendencies, which are not balanced out by the spontaneous um, will of individual employers. Except that so if, if the, the cost of a hypothetical six pack is $10 for ease of reference, and if, I would love, Maxim, if you can send me that article as I'd love, I haven't seen it, but I'd love to see it. So if you're saying that out of that $10 six pack, a brewer spends 10 cents on labor for every six pack sold, um, right, doing my math right. So 10 cents, the other $9 and 90 cents or in, in Ohio, we have, I mean, yeah, so it's not $9 and 90 cents. It's because there was profit built into that. So, and in Ohio, that, at least in my state, Ohio, that profit is set by law, both by what the distributor can charge and then what the, uh, and then what the manufacturer can charge. What the manufacturer can charge the distributor, what the distributor can charge the retailer in the three-tier system we operate in. And so there are some, there are set margins in that. Um, and so I guess the point I'm trying to make is, is that assuming that 1% number is correct, if you're going to go from 1% to, I don't know what you consider a fair number is 5%, 10%, whatever it is, then the question becomes, where does that give? Do you go from $10 to $11 to make up that difference? And is the market going to support that? And if the market doesn't support that and your sales suffer as a result, then do you do the people that you're trying to raise up with higher wages do some of them end up losing their jobs because you can't because your business can't support paying those wages or is the answer that every every six pack goes up a certain amount because all the wages all, all the wages are raised but then will the whole industry support I mean it's I, I don't I don't pretend to have any answers but I don't think I don't think the answer is as simple as we just say 1% is insufficient and we say we should be paying 3% or 5% or whatever the number is because we think that's fair. Because I think at the end of the day, based on what people will pay for a six pack of beer is ultimately going to dictate what a, what a fair compensation level is, assuming that ownership isn't gouging workers by taking an unfair share of profits. John, I would say that the one thing I've seen is these smaller breweries is they don't really have a strong gra uh, grasp of what they're paying, what the price of that beer is, right? So if you're just making this beer, but you don't really have a firm understanding, I think, you know, in general, it would really uh, help the industry if there was a more, um, an easier way of doing that. I think people struggle. They don't understand how much their production costs are, how much does it costs to make that beer. So to say this 1%, I think most the majority of these owners don't actually understand what that 1% is because you don't know how much it's costing to make that six pack. So that's one of the things. Um, I'd also say, you know, it's not necessarily how much are you paying for that six pack. It's how deep are the owner's pockets, right? If that owner is taking in $6 of that, of the $10, all right. And then these people are killing themselves that owner's not seen on the floor, but those wage, those people are working 50, 60, 70 hour weeks to get that money in that owner's pocket. You know, that is a really bad image. No doubt, no so, doubt. And that was my last point, which is assuming the owner ownership isn't taking an, un, an unreasonable percentage of what the profits, what the ultimate profitability of the business is. Abs absolutely, which goes back to the point of what's the perception of how ownership is spending their money and what does that, you know, what does that tell the employees about what's valued and what's not? So and I, Jake, I as agree a with that owner, what would you like to add to this? Well, I mean, I, again, I'm in a totally different situation. Look, me and all my friends that own breweries here in Oklahoma City, we're out there busting our butts, brewing and packaging ourselves. And I'm not seeing a lot of them with deep pockets. I can tell you that. Um, it's a tough you're not, business. You're, you're not, you're not that different than anyone else out there. I mean, yeah, most I mean, in look, the industry are in, the, yeah. are in the same exact boat you are. If, if I, if I wanted to pad my pockets, I'd have kept running casinos because I was padding my <laughs> pockets doing that. But, um, but again, you know, I, I really, I really think that you just, you, you just really have to think about that. There's a lot of differences 
between these different breweries and different businesses, you know, and not everybody's, we, we try to, um, we, we really try to stick to a certain percentage. You know, we have, we have metrics, Andrew, you're, you're friends with, uh, the guys at SB standard. That's who we use. That's who we use for our accounting. They provide great metrics that we go off of. I'm sad to say that I'm failing at that because tap room says I should be at three to 5%. I'm at about 12. So I'm triple paying taproom staff of what the metrics say I should. And I'm a little over the high end on what on the back on the backside on the production side. So, um, yeah. And what I was saying earlier is I just use these other breweries and what they're paying staff just as a to just like I price beer. Right. Like to see what the market is in the area. It doesn't mean I go off of what they do. I try to make sure that I'm at above at or above the high end of that. For sure, that's my baseline is to make sure that I'm I, and we, we pay our taproom staff double what most of the other taprooms pay. And so those metrics, though, it's having a good accountant. Like Stephanie said, knowing your numbers and knowing what beer costs, that stuff's important. If you if you don't know that stuff, then you really are just guessing and you probably are paying somebody what you know less less or maybe way more than you should. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, the educational component and just simply knowing how to run a business and constantly reviewing these metrics is so important. I want to throw out a quote a recent member of CVP had in the comments, and they said, if you can't afford to pay your staff a living wage, you can't afford to conduct your business. I'd love to hear everybody's thoughts on that. Well. I'll put my laundry out there. The day we opened, I had two grand in the bank. That was irresponsible. And I didn't open my business um, to make a bunch of money and get rich. I opened this business because this was me and my dad's dream. And when he passed away, I promised myself I'd do it. And I'm do, I've done the best I can to make it come true. And we're just now starting to get past that hurdle of opening with no money in the bank. And so um, I think a lot of people think they know what it means to run, start and operate a business. Um, we, John and, and everybody kind of mentioned this earlier, beer is a passion project for a lot of people. And sometimes that passion causes us to open a business, uh, maybe when we weren't 100 percent ready to open a business, you know, but needless to say if it's your passion it's what you really want to do and you have a purpose in life to make it happen then i'm all for somebody making it happen and go do it and figure it out the best you can as you go and that's kind of where we're at and we there's a lot of stuff i can't afford to do i can't afford a centrifuge i can't afford i really need help in the brewery right now and i just i'd rather pay my guy a little bit more and make sure he stays around because i cannot lose him than to pay him less so i can afford another person and so we're just trying to figure it out and we're doing the best we can. A lot of breweries are in that mode. Not everybody's, you know, doing it because they're trying to put money in their pockets. You know, I mean, for years we heard about fight for 15, 50, the fifth, you know, the $15 an hour wage as the, as the livable wage. Um, COVID brought us the $15 minimum wage. Um, and um, uh, stuff has got and inflation is what it is i mean gas is four dollars a gallon and my you know my personal grocery bill feels like it doubled in the in the past three months what i spend every week at the grocery store i mean stuff has gotten expensive and so i mean i i guess my question is i mean what is i mean what is a livable wage right i mean yes everybody everybody should have a roof over their heads and should have food on their table and and i i agree with that I agree with that a hundred percent, but at some point I believe there is some amount of personal responsibility that goes into that as well. Um, and so when I hear someone like Jake say, you know, he started his business with $2,000, you know, in the bank and, uh, you know, he's, you know, and his business is what it is. Um, I, I, I think personal responsibility, uh, works both ways, both for the employee and the employer, the employee to, this is my job. This is the career I'm choosing. And to live within the confines of what that's going to pay me, um, I think there's a responsibility there as well. I mean, I think that it sounds like nobody's really sort of refuting the premise of the question. Um, I think that in terms of what should the compensation be, for better or for worse, uh, there, the United States has like two nonprofit think tanks for every human. 
And we have no shortage of studies that are showing us quite reliably about what different living wages are for particular cities, for different family sizes, all the way up to states, all the way to the national level. I don't think we need to go around guessing, but what we could at the very least do is create a formal mechanism for workers to formally participate in a way that they are legally and factually protected in the course of participating in having a negotiation about what that compensation is. If people are really transparent about what they've got in the bank, they're really transparent about what the costs are, they love the people as they say they do, there's nothing to fear from having a negotiation at the end of which everybody wins. And Max, that's one reason I'm excited you're here today. As demonstrated by the recent conversations in CBP, you know, we need to be having these conversations and putting this information out there. And, you know, I'd just like to ask you, you know, why should a brewery consider being unionized? So I think there's a lot of reasons. I think for like kind of going back to where we started, people are in this industry because they love it. So they want to see it succeed. They want to succeed in the industry. They want to see the products be made as, as uh, efficiently as possible. They want to see the products do well. They want to see people enjoy them. Um, and having the ideas and processes that are used to create the products and sustain them go through more and diverse brains where people have a factual, legal, facts on the ground way of participating in those processes in a way that protects them from, from arbitrariness and reprisals um, is good for the industry. This is an industry that is used to stand, setting standard operating procedures. It knows the value of looking at a machine and asking, how do, I, how do we operate this machine? Let's put it on paper. Here's a particular product. How do, we, how do we make this particular product? Let's put it on paper. So this is not really an industry for which procedure and following careful procedure so that nobody gets physically injured uh, is, is, is like common territory getting people together to create those procedures where they're going to have a better outcome. Those people who are doing the work um, are going to be happier, more productive, more efficient. Um, you're going to stabilize your industry. For example, rather than having turnover, you're going to have, you know, um, your variable when you're assessing, um, you know, the, the quality control processes you're going to have less variables to take into consideration because you're going to have a stable group of people over time making the product, using the machinery, and they're going to accumulate skills over time. And so you can have a better product with people who accumulate skills rather than having to reinvent the wheel and train somebody new every single time. Um, and, and part of that is also uh, like part, you know, you, you, when you, you get viable buy-in when you share a sense of management control over the workplace with people who are doing the work. Right now, the way we sort of have it structured, even if you bring 2000 bucks to start the business, the person with the largest sack of cash has the exclusive management legal authority to direct how the work is done. And from our point of view, the people who are working in these breweries and producing the products ought to be participating in managing them. Um, we all want coordination, we all want vision, we all want direction. And the people who are producing the products are in the best position to do that because they're the ones who are who who for whom it's a passion, who have invested their whole life and energy into this industry. And out the other end of that are going to come better products that are more sustainable, that are going to be, you know, also good for the community in which these workers are employed. The community that is also consuming the products, you know, that that your uh, workers are a part of. Um, and we can see in other markets that are similar, like Western Europe, where levels of unionization in this sector um, are higher, that it, the sky has not fallen. And in fact, that the industry is robust um, with higher levels of compensation, more like more tighter procedures around scheduling, um, more representation, so on and so forth. So those are some um elements for the industry. To and Max, I like a quick follow up for you. You talk a lot about the production side of things. The craft beer industry is so unique because we have hospitality right alongside production. How does that play out into this equation? Absolutely. I mean, it's got to be sort of integrated. Otherwise, there's going to be uh, like there's going to be other forms like there's going to be other uh, parts where the consumption of alcohol 
um, in that hospitality side of things is going to impact sort of profit margins. It's going to impact working conditions. So this industry has got to be looked at holistically. And that's one of the things that we are calling for um, is an industry-wide union that can um, participate in setting conditions and compensation throughout the industry. Um, and we would welcome participation of everybody from the whole uh process all the way through from production to hospitality. No, I really appreciate your perspective. And John, you're openly anti that perspective. You know, what I, are your thoughts on this? Um, I am, uh, I, I am anti-union. Um, I think, you know, everything Maxim said can be accomplished without bringing in an intermediary, uh, uh who's paid by employees to negotiate uh, to negotiate on their behalf. Um, employers should be having conversations with employees about their jobs, about their, about their safety, about how things are done. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the business owners invest monetary investment in the business that, 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 uh, that needs to, that they need to look after. So at the end of the day, when I hear Maxim say, you know, every worker should have a say in how, uh, you know, a job is done. I mean, to a point, yes, but it's not their two thousand dollars in the bank that's going to get flushed if the business if 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 the business gets if the business gets flushed. So, um, so I I agree to a point. Um, uh, you know, businesses should be having those conversations uh, with employees, but I think. You know, there needs to be some understanding as to what the downsides of when a union comes in are, which are things like there is you you do to a large extent lose that direct communication with the employees because you have to go through that intermediary. Um, you uh, there are uh, the potential for resentment among employees uh, when uh, lower performing employees gain certain job protections through collective bargaining. Uh, there are. Um, you know, there are, uh, you know, employees that may not support unions uh, that have to pay union dues regardless. There are there are lots of reasons why um, for any particular business unions don't make sense. There are some employers, uh, you know, see uh, Amazon that get what they deserve. Um, uh, and so there are certainly environments where uh, things that things that don't play out the way they should play out to make for a, a healthy, productive workplace, make it uh, make that workplace ripe for ripe for unionization. I think uh, in workplaces where there is healthy communication, healthy respect, um, uh, where employees are valued, their opinions are valued, uh, they are paid, uh, you know, they are paid fairly. Um, uh, there's not a to, in my view, there's not a lot of value that a labor union brings to the table in a workplace uh, in, in when a workplace works the way it's supposed to work. I think conversations like this are extremely important because it provides both sides to the coin. And it's not just two sides of the coin. There's so many aspects we should, should consider when talking about fair compensation. I think this is more just the start of the conversation. And we need many, many more conversations like this from all perspectives. You know, I want to be respectful of everybody's time and I appreciate all the insight today. You know, I'd love to hear each of your final thoughts on how our craft beer industry can provide better compensation, more fair compensation, and what's an actionable strategy that brewery owners and employees should be doing right now. You know, I'll start. And I think what I think one issue that I think one issue that has not been brought up yet is the issue of pay transparency. Um, I think that's really important. Um, people should know what they're going to make when they hire onto a job. Um, and too often you don't because there is this black box of compensation. Um, there are some states now, uh, Colorado, um, uh, which has its fair share of craft breweries is one. New York City is another um, that have pay transparency laws that require when a job is posted to post what the pay range is for that particular job. Um, people should know um, what they're what they're applying for, what they're interviewing for, what they're going to be, what their compensation is going to look like when they get hired onto a job. And all too often um, they don't. And I think that leads to a lot of the inequity that we've been talking about and trying to avoid. And so I think pay transparency in the process um, is a really good way 
to kind of focus this conversation towards what is fair compensation? I would just um, like talk to the sector of the industry that are the workers, which is to say your employers are organized. They are organized in trade associations up and down every level of municipal, state, and federal, and they participate, use those trade associations to shape the market and to shape the laws that govern the labor market as well as the market of consuming beer. Um, and so it would only make sense to have equality there and be as organized, at the very least, as organized as your employers are to. Uh, reach fair compensation. I would add to that, you know, once again, fair comp, it, we're not just talking a number. I think compensation is also leading to retention and what's going to not only get them in the door, but get them to stay. So you need to think about the big picture. What's the company culture that you have? Like, is your environment diverse? Who are you bringing to the table? Are you going to the same pot every time to get people in? Because people... You know, another big thing is um, it's not just about compensation right now when people are leaving. People are leaving because of company culture, lack of diversity, and they're looking at jobs, they're taking this into consideration. So, you know, it's not just about that dollar amount, Jake. You know, I love that you're a small business owner, and I think that's what also people are looking at. When they're joining the company, who are they joining? Who's that owner? Is that owner physically there? she or she trying to make it? Is it a venture capitalist? You know, are you, where does the profits have to go? You know, so when we're also talking about labor and unions, you know, those are things you want to be thinking about. And then, you know, one other thing I would just add that hasn't really been spoken about, but people leave often managers, they don't leave companies. So if I believe in Jake, what you're doing and you treat me with respect, and I really feel like I believe in you, I'm gonna stay. And it's not gonna come down to the penny or what I can make it target. If I believe in you, if I believe in the product and the mission of the company, people are going to stay because it's that culture and that's why they're there. It is the passion, but I just don't want people to take advantage of those people and their passion. So- Stephanie, you know, what happens if the manager who you've chose to work for for quite a few times, late years, they decide to leave for whatever reason? then I hope that this person get promoted up, right? It's that training, it's keeping them on board. And if you have a bad manager, guys, it's way too expensive not to address that bad manager. So I think just being honest and, and transparent about all of this is huge. 10 times out of 10. Yep. Is there anything else anyone would like to add? Well, I'm just glad she brought up the word culture. Like, I think that's the first time we've said it in this whole conversation. And that's what we focus on. I already kind of expressed some of our um, shortcomings financially for us as a new startup brewery. So the culture side of it is where we try to make up for a lot of that stuff. Um, when I worked for my tribe, they brought me in because I was a team builder. That was my job was to build teams. I didn't know a lot about slot machines. <laughs> I knew a lot about building a team and trying to make sure people want to follow me and one of the ways we did it is with culture and making sure that everybody has a say in things that we do have we use their ideas um, even times i think their idea might not work i use it and if it doesn't work it's a learning experience for them and for me and making sure that also the biggest thing for me is this whole ordeal this this conference's talk starting back to the post about who all was going to be on this i was a little disappointed to hear some people say that we couldn't have a good, honest conversation in this group because of a certain person being in the group. And I think that's sad. I think we can have great conversations. I'm in here mainly because I don't know a lot about, um, uh, you know, unions. I don't have an opinion either way as an employer. And I, and it was great to hear both sides of it for me. And so I learned a little bit from that. And I think if you're willing to have conversations with people who might disagree with you, you might learn something. And without this conversation, I wouldn't have learned some of the things I learned today. So having these open forums like this is huge for our industry. I, I wish I, I, I wish I knew I wish I knew the person they were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I think having these open conversations where all information from all perspectives is shared is really important so we can all learn. Just like the consumer who shows up in your tap room, you're gonna have 10 different beers on tap. You want to make sure that they find the perfect beer for them. And, you know, as brewery owners and employees, you want to find the perfect experience for you. And that takes, you know, education on your part. And I, 
hope we continue to see more safer, safer and welcoming workplaces where everybody's treated fairly and we all can be better. You know, and as we conclude, I would love each of you to just simply say if anyone's interested in learning more about you or reaching out, how can they get a hold of you and follow you? And Maxim, you're to the right, so you get to go first again. Sure, yeah. So um, people who want to get unionized in the brewery industry, reach out to us at iww.org slash unionize, and you can get yourself on the path to uh, setting up a conversation with one of our labor organizers who will get back to you promptly and connect with other people in the industry who are leading this uh, leading this uh, uh, new effort across the United States and internationally. Uh, it's being done by people in the industry on a voluntary basis, driven by volunteers who are passionate and embedded in the industry for a union that is going to, uh, of workers who are going to, you know, take, take their working lives into their own hands in this industry. And Max, I truly appreciate you being here today. Thank you. Thanks. Stephanie? My name is Stephanie Davines. Um, I'm with Brew Recruit. So if you guys need help, um, you know, looking at trying to get ideas of what other people are being paid in your industry. You know, another big thing is like interviewing, how you're being fair in that interview, trying to ask the questions when it relates to talking about compensation. You know, one thing I would just say is I always ask, you know, what is your target compensation and what is a range you'd honestly consider? It opens it up for conversation and it doesn't put someone in the corner. So if there's any way I could help guide anyone in that, please just reach out. I'm happy to help. Um, I'm recruiting all levels in the beer industry. I have been, uh, I've had my own company for five years, so happy to help any way I can. Um, but you can email me directly at recruiting at brewrecruit.com or call my Sal, text me, uh, 315-378-3044. Happy to You're help. brave putting your cell phone on the internet <laughs> I, like I, that. I, I will not <laughs> be giving people my cell phone number. <laughs> Jake, you're up. I mean, I think just like most breweries, the best way to find us is on social media, on the Instagram at, at Skydance Brewing, uh, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff. And like you mentioned at the very beginning, I kind of documented my journey a little bit on our YouTube uh, channel. And then also I tried to learn from a lot of other entrepreneurs by starting a podcast and interviewing them. And so I have a podcast called Brewed with Hustle. You can find it on my favorite version is on YouTube because we do some cool uh, video stuff with it, but also on all the, the Spotify and Apple, all that stuff. And John, besides a recent CBP thread, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me at Brewery Union Busters. No, it's it's uh, it's oh, <laughs> it is uh, it's OhioBeerLawyers.com. You can find me. That'll take you to uh, to my law firm's website and all the information is there. And it's conversations like this, why CBP exists. I often say they're tough conversations, but they're not tough conversations. They're critical conversations we need to be having. So I appreciate everybody being here today. Maxim, Stephanie, Jake, John, I appreciate all of you. I appreciate everybody in CBP. Thank you and everybody have a great rest of your day. Cheers. Thanks, cheers. Thanks, Thanks. thank you. Bye. We are proud to keep CBP 100% free and accessible to all. If you enjoy conversations like this, please hit the subscribe button.